Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vibe Bio. Vibe is an investment platform focused on the biotech industry. I'm really excited today to be joined by Simei Chow, the co-founder, CEO, and scientist at Arcadia Science. She's also a board member at Navigation Fund and also chief of strategy at Estera Institute. We're really excited to have her today to talk a little bit about Arcadia, her journey and evolution in building the organization, along with the future that she sees for the discipline of science as a whole. Simei, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. You know, maybe to kick us off, would love it if you could perhaps give us a couple quick words on your background and how you got to where you are today. Sure. My background is in science. I moved from academic science. I was previously assistant professor in the Department of Biochemistry at UCSF, and then more recently moved out of that space into more entrepreneurial space, thinking about how science can happen outside of traditional academic institutes. That's basically been my journey. A lot of my journey is really informed by what I'm excited about scientifically and what I feel like are the gaps as a scientist that I would really like to pursue. And maybe on that topic, there are so many folks who listen to the podcast that I've spoken to who are interested in making that transition from academia into a more industrial setting. Mm-hmm. Curious if you have any initial words of wisdom or guidance for folks who are in that same boat. My best piece of advice, which actually applies to everything I've done in my career, is just take the first step. Like, don't overthink it, actually. Usually the first step is not your final step or even a very long step. And it's the hardest one, though, ironically. But it opens up so many more opportunities and there's a lot of like uncertainty you might have and questions about it. It's all going to get answered, but it's not going to get answered if you don't move. My recommendation is just try something. Great advice. I think a lot of folks, especially that I've met in the biology world, tend to be really meticulous planners, right? To really forecast and plan a couple of years out. Sounds like that might not be the best advice from a career standpoint. In my experience, I mean, not even in academia where the path is a little more structured, and linear, or at least it feels that way. Even within my own career in academia, I never exactly knew where I was headed. I was just like roughly mapping out what it could look like in five, 10 years, but really trying to figure out like of the things immediately in front of me, what makes me most excited and most motivated. And that's actually led me to, I think, make a lot better choices and also move in directions that were surprising. And I think that's also like where you can be most effective. Like you can't really tell how you're going to be effective 10 years from now. You're going to be a different person. But you can tell how you're going to be effective today. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess also the industry and the market also shifts too, right? I'm sure we could spend an entire hour talking about academia and and the psychology (laughs) of one's career. Maybe before we get to that topic, would love to spend a little bit of time on Arcadia. And if I could ask just a direct blunt question, what is Arcadia Science? That is a very good question. One that we've like actually struggled with quite a lot. So let me start super high level and step down. Arcadia is an experimental new life science research model. We're testing out a different way to both enable and sustain basic science, essentially. A little more concretely, it's a for-profit company where our major product is our science. And we're trying to think about how we do science sort of a basic and applied interface and also think about how we move that into very entrepreneurial directions. Like at the end of the day, the people at Arcadia are both basic scientists and entrepreneurs. And so we're very interested in creating a model that really like allows us to shine and like what we find most exciting. 
We do have like pretty specific science and business schools. I'm going to start with the science because that is how we think about everything at Arcadia. From a scientific perspective, there was a really big gap and opportunity that we saw, which is that there's not enough broad surveying of biology in a scalable and predictable way to figure out where really cool inventions have already happened. In addition to that, sort of our business thesis is that there's this valley of death thing that everybody talks about where even if you find those discoveries, what is actually the shortest path and most effective path towards translating that into a real world tool of some sort? And so we're really interested in thinking about both of these things. I think as a pure company definition, what we've essentially started morphing into, and it's kind of like our own conversion evolution, is essentially a venture creation studio. Like we are trying to figure out how to start companies and how to operationalize that. And a lot of that, we're super lucky that we don't have to totally reinvent it. We're just borrowing a lot of the success mechanisms of other places. But what we're doing is putting a heavy, heavy emphasis on doing our own fully in-house research program that is like pre-idea for these startups. We're not trying to reach into academia or other places to start collaborations, but rather build up our own seeds of ideas that we then incubate across the value of death ourselves so that we can actually execute in our way. When you think about science historically and how it's manifested in companies, there's a very simplistic mental model. If you're using science to develop a product or you're using science to develop a service, I kind of get the feeling right. that you're doing something slightly different than either of those or am I off base? We're using science to basically create starting points for both of those things. I think that those things aren't untrue but they're not the primary goal for us. Our primary goal is to like position ourselves to say, here's the science that we think is most interesting and useful that we really want to continue doing. And we think it's important in the world for us to continue doing. Now, what are the best ways for A, those things to reach into the real world for value? And also B, bring some of that value back to continue sustaining the science which is a little bit different from saying our goal is to create this product and make this amount of money and then how does science serve that? You know, sort of like flipping that script around a bit. Yeah, very interesting. Obviously, I'm sure over the past year to two years, as you've both ideated and evolved as an organization, there's probably been a lot of learnings. Any chance you could kind of rewind the clock and take us back to when you first either had the idea for Arcadia Science or first started it? What's been the journey and the evolution been like to get to this point where you've got more conviction in your current sort of scientific and business theses? I would say that like our overarching thesis about there being a really amazing opportunity and need for like exploration across biology, that has not changed. Our desire to figure out sustainable ways to do that while staying true to our sort of scientist principles, one example of that is like open science, that has not changed. Some other things that have changed, though, to enable these goals are our framing of that scientific question, as an example. When we first started Arcadia, I think Prachi and I tweeted something out about like, oh, Institute for Non-Model Organisms. And there's a bunch of stuff around this that I feel like I can point out that are not true anymore. One is that it's not exactly about non-model organisms. It's not not about it, but it was a wrong framing because that is not the primary thing that we're after. The primary thing we're after is how we start thinking more strategically about using biological organisms as tools for study. That may sometimes be non-model organisms. It also depends on like how people define it. There's a wide definition of how you might define that. 
But it also includes model organisms. Like how do we expand our repertoire of model organisms to best customize our needs for different problems we're trying to solve? And so really what we're talking about is just like moving more nimbly across biology, across the tree of life, and building the kinds of like tools and workflows that are necessary for us to move towards that future where we can be sort of like more agnostic about which organisms and how we use them, but rather what is the best way to use them. So a big shift for us scientifically was quite early on to say, there's no way we're going to decide which like five new organisms we're going to anoint here. In fact, that is the biggest question that remains unanswered everywhere is how do you pick? And how do you pick is kind of like our internal central battle cry for our science. It's like, we're trying to figure out how to do that. We're trying to figure out how to predict biology here so that we pick the right organisms. And so from an organizational level, the other part of the thing that I said we tweeted out was like institute for non-model organisms, the word institute. It's not that we're not an institute, but what we learned from that is that there is a lot of like strong assumptions people make once you drop that I word that like one, they think, oh, it's definitely nonprofit. So that's one thing I would push against that we are unapologetically for profit. We're trying to figure out how to sustain this. And that I think that people conflate nonprofit status with values. We have very, very strong principles about what we think is right for the world and right for utility for science and progress. And those things are not changed by tax status. And so like, we are not trying to pull one over on anyone. We're actually trying to redefine what is possible as a for-profit. Second, people assume when you say institute that you have PIs, you have labs, you have a structural setup that looks very much like an academic institute. That is also not true. Our structure looks way more like a company or an incubator where everybody is banding together across different initiatives, but after the same goal. And it's nimble also. We can reorg and shuffle people around depending on what our current needs are. And that is like a very different set of expectations that you would have for someone that says, oh, I'm a PI. I'm going to get X amount of budget to build my domain around this question. And I think there's things for which that works very well because it gives some level of autonomy and freedom to like explore in an area. But that's actually not what we're trying to do. We're trying to like explore very nimbly with the whole team in a collaborative way. And that is like our greatest strength as a startup is to be like fast and nimble. It's interesting because I know microbiology is sort of a core scientific competency and area of interest for you all. There's obviously been over the past 10, 20 years, a lot of excitement in the broader area of synthetic biology. I say as a whole, you know, if you talk to folks like Reishman and Jason from Ginkgo versus guys like John Cumbers from Symbio Beta, you know, everyone's got a lot of excitement around the space. I'm kind of curious, really? like, as you start to see Arcadia evolve, and even just that concept of evolution of an organization, I think is kind of entertaining. But when as you think about the evolution of Arcadia, mm-hmm. what parts of synthetic biology do you feel like is most exciting and relevant? Or did you get greater conviction on versus parts which you got less conviction on for the organization? So I would say my excitement about Symbio is extremely high in very general terms. My excitement for Symbio in terms of being an appropriate match for Arcadia's capabilities right now is lower. Maybe if I could take a step back and just kind of share my framing in my mind around organisms that I think there's like at least four different ways that I think about organisms as technology. One is the way you describe for Symbio, it's kind of a framing around organisms as alternative and way better manufacturing sites, that they could be ways to like produce and grow the things that we want. And that's exciting. Another way of thinking about organisms is as sources of novelty. 
Like you could say organisms have evolved to solve all different problems. And some of them are exceptional outliers for finding like really extreme ways to solve things that we care about. If you can extract out the principles of how that's done, we can borrow from them and sort of engineer our own novelty, our own types of traits that we want. A third way of thinking about it is to say organisms are great experimental models. That it's not the differences that are important, it's the similarities that are important. And I do think that's true, that that is an extremely useful framing of organisms and has clearly shown that in the past in science. This is like obviously not my work. This is all of science has like iterated on this, right? And I think even in commercial domain, the difference between being able to find solutions to disease and not often hinges on whether there is a viable experimental model that you can move forward with before you get to the clinic. So those, I think, are maybe the top three people tend to think about. And then a fourth one that I think we are all starting to think about is organisms as individual data points within a larger holistic data set of biology and how thinking about them in this connected way could actually get us closer to underlying design principles that are emergent across biology because they're all sort of just like different iterations of countless experiments. So I've laid out all four. Basically, out of all four of these, the organisms as manufacturing symbio is the one thing that we are not currently focusing on. The reason for that is a few things. One is that, like, I think it's an area where there's a lot of other people making gains already, and we're really interested in thinking about gaps we can uniquely fill. Second is that I think it's a really difficult area that everybody in that field is struggling with now because of like hard technical questions such as scaling and manufacturing. And I don't think that the particular team we have today at Arcadia or the focus we have is going to give us a huge edge in solving that problem. And so given market conditions in that, I think it makes sense for us to sort of like focus where we can make early gains. We can probably contribute in an indirect way, which is to say, as we get better at developing like genetic tools for different organisms, as we get better at thinking about different ways to pick organisms for different problems, we hope people in Symbio benefit from that. And we're publishing a lot of it. So like, I really, truly hope that our work is useful in that way. Now, the other three, though, I think are within reach for us. And we're definitely excited to think about. We have constrained it to thinking about problems within therapeutics because I think we don't want to like spread our focus out too much. And that is like a clear direction we can make impactful gains in. And so I'm happy to talk about each of those. But basically, our entire research platform is around how do you pick the right organisms for each of those different things? It's amazing. I'll be honest, when you look at at least the therapeutics lens, which I always have got a little bit more exposure to, there has been a historical rift, if you will, between those who think about human biology and microbiology. And I'm not 100% sure that gulf ought to be as wide as it is. So first off, I'm curious if you can help me even understand why such a large gulf exists in the first place. But then second, as you start to think about whether it's therapeutics or other applications, if you'd walk us through the mental model of how you think about someone or how you guys think about evaluating and choosing an organism, what are some of the broad strokes kind of things to consider and what moves the needle? Before I answer that question, I want to make sure I understand the rift that you're referring to because there's lots of rifts. I think the rift you're referring to is the rift of like siloing of different organismal or taxonomical disciplines. Are you referring to the feeling that one is more relevant or are you referring to the feeling that like the tools and the communities and cultures are different? What exactly are you referring to? Yeah, yeah it's a really interesting question. Initially, my thought was the rift just scientifically. You see very little overlap or 
cross-referencing or leveraging of tools on either side for either domain. So there's a scientific siloing. I also would agree that there is, as a result, also a cultural difference between those two communities as well. So I was initially referring to the former, but also to your take on the latter. Yeah. So I think that the rift that you're referring to then is one that also exists across like most disciplines in the life sciences, where people are pretty siloed from each other. And some of it is for good reasons, practical reasons, and some of it is for historical, also practical reasons. I think historically, there's been a natural growing of different communities that has led to this because of this need for economies of scale for different people tackling a really challenging problem together. And maybe not today, but like many, many years ago, decades ago, you just like, you need other microbiologists, you need other bacteriologists who really understand media and not like press media, like actual gross media, <laughs> different ways of thinking about bacteria, different ways of thinking about the physiology. And there actually truly are important differences in the physiology of these organisms. And so, so you really benefit a lot from that community synergy. What it does accidentally do sometimes is it causes people to hyper-focus on the ways in which their community needs are unique. And so that does create divisions where you miss this, right? That there's like connections between these different fields. And I'm not saying it's missing completely. I do think people understand, especially people who are in more in integrative biology or evolutionary biology. But I think the other thing is also just like, and this is like a particularly exciting thing to think about at this moment in history, there is a limit to human capacity to manually curate anything. Like there are only so many papers you can read. There's only so many conferences you can go to. There's only so many data sets you can sit there and manually analyze. So if you consider this limited bandwidth, yes, you will have people focusing more on the things that are more directly relevant to their work. The reason I think that's really exciting to consider at this moment in history is that we are literally living a moment right now where these things don't have to be true anymore. And in the same way we're asking, why has there been this siloing in the past with these fields? We are in it right now. We're like, if we don't update our own software, our own thinking about what's possible today, we are at risk of like making some weird strategic choices about things that don't have to be true because that is how we're used to doing things. And so now we're just breaking into a whole new era where like things don't have to be manually curated. Data sets are larger and there's more ways computationally, technologically for us to like think about those data at different systems levels. So I think all of this is going to change these divisions in terms of departments like microbiology, biochemistry. They're not even orthogonal, right? One's like a set of organisms or size of organisms. Microbiology isn't even a taxa. And one is like a technique. Yet we still have these like weird divisions. And so I think the future of life sciences is going to look quite different. Even internally at Arcadia, our divisions are not around organismal taxa. They're around scale of the problem. Like we think about when you're trying to look at trends across biology, there's different scales at which you can consider that question. Genomic scale, protein scale, other types of molecules, right? You can even think about at the cellular scale or multicellular scale, behavioral phenotypes. And so I think to us, that feels a little more germane to what we're trying to figure out when we're picking up on patterns than taxa. Makes a lot of sense. But I want to pull on this one thread of the world and the expectations of a scientist are going to change quite rapidly over the next 10 to 20 years. I'd imagine part of it's because of our evolution of understanding of biology, but also because of these new technologies like compute. 
So when it comes to this Cambrian explosion that we're in the middle of, how should scientists evolve and adjust to be relevant over the next decade, two decades, et cetera? I am like an endless optimist about this stuff. So I know there's a view of like nervousness for losing our importance in this process, but I actually have like a very opposite view of this, that I think what this Cambrian explosion is doing is it is giving all of us scientists more tools at our disposal to make better hypotheses and ask better questions. When you think about when you're in grad school, you're trying to read all the papers, talk to all the people, try and get as holistic of a picture as you can about some field so that you can be informed to ask really good and like achievable questions. Now, imagine blowing that up like times a thousand on steroids. Like that's actually what we can do now. It's not that like it's going to replace us. It's going to inform our ability to have like more thoughtful starting points, more informed starting points, less serendipitous sort of entry points into science. And so I think that's going to be one of the biggest things that people aren't thinking about. It's not just about answering questions and using data to react to questions. It's our ability to ask better questions in this process because we have more context. Very interesting. It seems like it's going to be an accelerant for those who are among the more inquisitive and open-minded of us and perhaps more of a cause greater fear in those who are perhaps less so. Is that a fair interpretation? Yeah, probably. I mean, I think that's probably true of all progress in society. (laughs) Undoubtedly, there are going to be aspects of the experimental science we do that will become more automated and it will be a difficult transition. I'm not going to like sugarcoat that. And and it will be an unfortunate transition for a lot of people. Just like think about like when manufacturing changed and during the industrial revolution. But I think it's on us to like evolve with that and figure out how we move that towards good as aggressively as possible. Well, you know, one of the things you did mention is sort of compute and AI obviously has, I think, an interesting role to play here. Curious how Arcadia is starting to leverage that technology and also some of the other institutions you're a part of, like Navigation Fund and Astera Institute, how they're also playing a role in this as well. That is definitely one of the surprising things that, well, maybe not so, so much surprising, but just different from when we started. You can even see it just in our like physical facilities, how much space we allotted for sort of lab work versus computational work. We are running out of office space for desk space for computational work and our like half of our lab space is still empty. And I think what this means is there's a big shift in sort of what feels important to expand out. And so software, computational biology, machine learning or unsupervised learning, these are all things that are giving us a huge leg up in how we're doing our science and have really like been a priority for how we start our projects, especially for us where we're trying to predict which organism. We spend a lot of time trying to take a big step back from like different problems we're interested in asking ourselves, okay, what is actually the most effective way for me to broadly survey biology for what the reasonable starting point could be? And there is no other way to do that except through some sort of computational approach. Like you're not going to sit there and run an assay across the entire tree of life. On the other hand, you can sit there and download sufficient coverage of like genomes and other publicly available data across the tree of life that you can start picking up on patterns to know where to start. So because of that, like many, many, many of our research pilots begin at a computational point. 
It's not true of everything, but I think by and large, it's been true. And at least in my own experience, in my past life doing academic research, it was kind of the opposite. And so I think that's like a really fun thing. And it leads us down all sorts of paths that like we wouldn't predict. So that's been a big push for us in trying to figure out how we navigate across genomes, across proteins. AlphaFold has been a huge boon. All of our ability to predictively generate protein structures has been a huge boon for another scale at which we can think about it. We're also really interested in sort of like either lightly labeled or unlabeled microscopy imaging where we could start doing unsupervised learning to identify what the generative features of some trait are. And that is like a really, really exciting team to think about. And then the real thing, though, is what we need is computational tools to not only do these analyses at different scales, but stitch the results together so there can be a more holistic interpretation of what is the causal basis of X. And so that's sort of like, in a nutshell, kind of how we're thinking about our discovery process at Arcadia. At Astera, you know, we've also started thinking about a different aspect of science, which is how we disseminate information, how we share information and engage in scientific dialogue, both in terms of distributing it as well as getting feedback and maybe like more predictive automated modes of validating results and predicting what's useful. And I know this is something you've thought about as well, but essentially what I'm talking about is publishing as we know it today. But publishing as we know it today is going to completely change in the next decade. I have a really hard time thinking about what the world looks like ever in 10 years. But if I try, it's not going to look like publishing today. Publishing today is built on a totally different model in terms of like what technologies are available to us. Publishing in 10 years is not only going to be more internet friendly, but it's going to be more predictive, I think. Like, look at basically everything in the world that can is moving towards a more predictive model in some way. And so we're really excited in a series of thinking about how, how we like catalyze some of this exploration. And so what are different tools that people can use to start sharing their work, validating their work, predicting things based on what we know to be true of what are aspects? I mean, it's kind of like the causal basis, the generative properties of knowledge. What are the signs that something was true? And I think as an example for youth by bio, you're thinking about this in terms of like outcomes, like drug clinical outcomes that we can, in theory, we think work backwards from that outcome and ask yourself without biasing towards any of the people stuff, like what were actually the signals that would be the best ones to track for that outcome? And to me, that's like where all of like scientific dialogue will be going one day is like, we're going to have clear signals that are have nothing to do with clout, have nothing to do with a lot of the politics we think about today. And I'm not saying it will ever be fully free of that, but we are going to move closer to a state where those things are less important because we have data-driven ways to think about this. So Sarah, we have a big push to this EIR program for thinking about people coming from outside of academia with different technical skill sets that can like really think outside of the box to start building this layer of tools. And like, it's really at a very experimental, but exciting phase of the process while we're building up a huge compute cluster that can also provide access to that technology to actually iterate on something. Super interesting. There's a lot of pieces there, especially from a publishing standpoint and from a knowledge access standpoint. You know, from my prior days in sort of software, one of the things I observed was that even just something as standardized formats, as mundane of a topic as it may be, is a huge barrier to learning from historical work, as an example. 
it strikes me that the current challenges we have, not only around communication, but also reproducibility, et cetera, it's almost a death by a thousand cuts of that variety. One, is that consistent with your perspective? And two, curious how you see Arcadia maybe playing a role to either remediate some of those issues or at least shine a light on them. Yeah. So I would say like that is an issue everywhere, really. Like it's an issue for scientific publishing and the more academic realms. It's also an issue within biotech companies. Like you see this all the time that if they don't have like good data architecture and good data hygiene, that you've basically missed the bigger opportunity. And so I think that it's also a thing that people in both sectors don't always want to invest time into. You know, there's not a lot of like funding and infrastructural support in academia for this. And that's like a huge disadvantage for universities. They should be absolutely thinking about this because there's so much more they could do if they had that for their folks. Biotech companies also, you like mountains of like clinical or preclinical data that is very hard to sort of like learn from past mistakes. But it's kind of boring. It's like, you know, you're going to have to like stop your sprint to do this. So like nobody really wants to invest time into that. I think for us at Arcadia, in terms of publishing, what we are trying to think about is just like, what is scalable and what processes in terms of our scientists is scalable? Trying to like speed up the efficiency of how we share information, how we document information so that it doesn't feel like this like huge thing where when you need to publish something, you have to pause for like six months and write it. Like we should be documenting all along the way where that process is really seamless. Second, like some of the choices we made for our publishing experiment are indeed trying to make sure it's like interoperable and discoverable within the larger system. So you can actually like find us on Google Scholar. There's a DOI. There's ways to make sure we stay connected. We also think about the data that we generate, making sure it's in a usable form. We're very active on GitHub and put a lot of thought into just like the public databases that we enter our stuff into. But it is a much bigger problem than Arcadia. And I don't know what the long-term solution is. I do think people at funding agencies and universities need to start taking this really, really seriously. And I think they kind of are, but I think people are underestimating the level of resourcing this actually needs. And that until we fix this, all the other things that people are like excited to throw money at will have like very limited impact. Within Arcadia proper, trying to figure out all this stuff and like how to build like a really strong biology plus software culture as well as best practices is like a thing that we grapple with basically every day because it's like, how do you find the right balance between doing it correctly and thinking long-term versus like getting to your short-term thing that you need to ship? It's so interesting. Also, I think there's this weird like cultural aspect in science where a lot of the truly highly trafficked and valued like common repositories were actually not started by companies or by agencies, but rather just by communities, right? Like BioArchive as an example. And I think that's a really interesting manifestation of commons in science specifically. And I think we might need more communal effort like that. But when you start talking about open science, especially one of the things I've noticed about Arcadia is that y'all are doing a really interesting thing about building in public in general. And it's more than just the scientific results, but it's also the outcomes, your strategy, what Arcadia is. You're a fairly open and transparent in that regard. That's very rare in the biotech space. Would love to hear kind of your learnings and experiences doing that, some of the pros and the cons. How does that change how you operate, et cetera? Maybe just a quick note before I say that it's intentional because this is one of our core science values. That as a scientist in the world, what you're trying to get to is truth and a rigorous path towards truth. And so it is just like way more important to get it right than to 
get ahead. And so that has to be reflected in everything we do, including this point. And so it is, of course, a risk. If we wanted to live a risk-free life at Arcadia around this, we would publish nothing, say nothing. We would go to the extreme on all these things, right? But that comes at a cost. People don't think about some of the costs that comes at, especially if you're pre-idea. One is that you actually aren't getting like feedback on things that you really need feedback on. There's no way, you know, Arcadia is going to house all the experts in the world that can give all the feedback we will ever need for our science. We want our science to be solid. We want it to be excellent. So that's one thing. You can't actually do that and get feedback. Number two, we want our stuff to be useful in the world. I mean that in not just a commercial way, but like the real feedback on whether Arcadia worked is if Arcadia's model is ever replicated. That's never going to happen if people don't actually know what we're doing. And I don't want people to like repeat mistakes that we made unnecessarily. And then I guess like that is the ultimate insurance on everything we do. And there's a lot of stuff that like we have tried playing around with scientifically that either didn't work for us. And so someone else should move forward with like, there's no reason to have scarcity mindset around this. Like, why would we hold on to it if we're not going to do it? So that's one thing. And then second is that like, actually, who cares if there's competition? Like competition is great. I'm pro competition for things that are really important in the world. Like, let's all make an honest effort with all the information up in front of us and have a fair fight over like trying to build something awesome. Why wouldn't I want more people to do that? And so I think that does require an abundance mindset and a willingness to like say, I value sort of progress above commercial. Having said all of that, I actually don't think that for everything, this is going to be a non-starter for us in terms of financial success. Yes, there are certain things that matter in biotech in terms of IP and all that, but there are a lot of things that aren't. And we sort of like trick ourselves into thinking that if we had IP and don't share it, that we're safe. But the biggest moat is your execution of it. And I think that is like a very like startup mentality that we do have is we're just going to be the best. That's a different mentality to say like our people and our execution are our moat. I think it's more present in like the software world and the manufacturing world, but I think it's true for us. We're doing something pretty unique. And if we're not the best in the world, great. It means someone else is really good at this and the world is moving forward. But I think there's like a superpower we have that a lot of people don't have, which is that we have two investors who are fully invested in this experiment, which means that we have a longer timeline. They have different return expectations than most investors. And so as long as we're doing things that uniquely capitalize on our specific set of ingredients, I think that we could be okay. And we'll find out from this process what where the real edge is in terms of how much you can share. And I think it's way further out than people currently operate. I don't know. I would just say for patients and like people like you, when you think about Vibe Bio, we've lost sight of what the goal is here. Our goal is to make progress. And so if that is truly your goal, you would operate like this, in my opinion. I think a great spirit, it dovetails something really nicely. And one of the things I observed when you were kind enough to invite me to visit you all at Arcadia in California, I observed a really interesting kind of dynamic amongst your team and really have to give you and Prashi a lot of credit for having such an authentic, passionate group that is also has tremendous humility. It's very unique in the biotech world and among scientists, especially when there's a huge amount of uh, credentialism and pride in one sort of intellect and such. So would love to just learn a little bit more about both the culture that you're trying to build, but the mechanics you're using to make sure you stay true to that culture and be intentional about it, but also 
kind of the broader view you have for the responsibility scientists have at Arcadia, both to the institution and to the discipline at large? I was so happy to hear that feedback from you. It's something that I think we care a lot about, like our culture and our values at Arcadia. It really does stem from like, what is our perspective in the world as scientists? What are our values because of the craft that we've chosen to pursue, which is like truth-seeking discipline? And one of them has to be honesty. I would say honesty is probably at the top of that list, is that you have to be not just honest to the world, but extremely honest to yourself about what information is in front of you, what you can be confident about, what alternative explanations for it are. And I think that is maybe like what you're experiencing as the other vibe, which is like humility. Like there's kind of like no way to be fully honest with yourself and not have it be inherently humble. And so I think that that is, if you meet, scientists get a lot of bad rap in media, but most of the scientists you meet in the world, they've chosen what they've chosen to do because they like care deeply about it. And they're by and large, extremely humble and honest people. And that is like something that we think is also just like necessary for someone to be a good scientist. If we recruit for people that we think are going to be really good, rigorous scientists, those qualities show up. I also think just like having a good sense of humor, like, I mean, a scientist is just, you're wrong half the time. Like, how can you take yourself that seriously? So it does lead also to just kind of like a lighthearted, good sense of humor in people. And we work better with that type of person. I guess the other thing that we really try and emphasize internally is just like data, not drama. Like if we are of an art that's sort of like built around empiricism, like really, really emotionally charged drama doesn't really have a appropriate place most of the time. And the irony is that when we have the least data is when people are the most emotional. It's just like kind of counterintuitive. But so like we always say like data, not drama, because it's truly the case. Like usually when there's drama, it's just like we're missing information. And there is a path to get that information if you're like high enough agency and you're thinking about it, that you could approach it that way. So I think those are some of the elements of our culture that show up. The way we try and reinforce it, of course, is just like we have our operating principles that we've referred to a lot. Some of this stuff is in there, but you know, I do think it has to start from the top all the way through the entire organization. It needs to show up. So I think that, yeah, I'm accountable for all of these things and I have to be extra conscientious about the way I approach these things, but also very clear and very sort of rigorous in our recruitment process. It needs to show up in every single person at Arcadia. And so what we try to do is like suss some of these things out when we interview people. We don't actually respond super well to candidates that are too smooth (laughs) because we're actually looking for people who will like question themselves and be precise And it doesn't actually translate as a super smooth, charismatic type of person, which is not to say I don't think people here are charismatic, but like, it can't just be that. We're looking for a lot more substance. And so our interview processes are quite lengthy. And we do kind of try and scare people away by being like overly honest. We never try and pitch Arcadia in too positive of a light. We just try and be accurate. Like, this is what your experience will be like here. This is our expectation from you. If you're worried about this or this or this risk in your career, you would be correct to do so, period. It's just sort of like laying it all out there. And for the right kind of person, it's not scary. It demonstrates a tremendous amount of self-awareness around who you all are, what works best. And I think why put any airs around it, right? You want to attract people who want to be in that environment and will give it 110%, I'm guessing. Yeah. People are true to themselves in interviews, even if they 
try not to be for whatever reason, you know, you can kind of tell by their actions. Like we're looking for people who see the broader impact opportunity here at Arcadia and see the opportunity to function as part of a team to do something that very few people in the world get to do, which is to really test out a different model for science. If you're more concerned about sort of your individual advancement and like accumulation of resources above that, this is not going to be a good place for you. And it shows up in the questions you ask. I'm not saying people shouldn't care about that stuff, but like if all they ask are questions about that, as opposed to some curiosity about what are we doing? What are different versions of that? What are failure modes? Like really being thoughtful about like how we make progress as a team, then that's not a good sign. Interesting. Now, obviously, as we wrap here, you know, I'm sure there's probably a few positions that are open at Arcadia. Anything you want to showcase that you're hoping to, types of people or skill sets you're hoping to bring into the organization? Yeah, it really is a very exciting time at Arcadia. I'm always excited about Arcadia, but I will say objectively right now in this particular moment is very exciting. Here's why it's exciting, because we've moved past the most chaotic part of the org. You know how it is in startups, like where in the beginning, it's just like fires, like operational fires, like everybody's doing everything. We sort of moved past some of that where now we're getting into the like really interesting stuff, but it's still early enough where every single person we hire has a real opportunity to shape the future of Arcadia. And we have a more concrete idea about what we're trying to execute in the next 12 months. So what we're looking for at the operations level, we're looking for people who are coming from outside of science, outside of academia, to think about different models of operation, like whether it's in tech or other spaces. And I do think there's a lot of aspects of what we're trying to grow here that will have shared features of sort of like tech companies because of the computational aspect. On the business side, it's go time. We are definitely building out our incubator space. And we have like not just physically, but like conceptually, like, and we're looking for people who know how to build startups, know how to diligence, know how to operationalize them, and are excited to get in there and have many, many different shots on goal with scientists side by side with them to figure out new paths towards spinning out startups, potentially startups that they could be co-founders of, and really have a way to like shape what venture creation looks like moving forward. From the science side, we're extremely excited to build sort of a lot of our like software, computational ML capabilities. So people who have skills in that domain and are excited to think about like, what is the highest impact thing I can do with these skills in biology? Happy to train people who don't come from biology and happy to train biologists who don't maybe have like a ton of like computational experience. We expect everybody to be operating at some level. We provide training for that. And so if you're interested in thinking about basic principles underlying biology across the tree of life, now is the time to check out our job ads and see how you can fit into this process. And the team is really excited to grow. We're like about 40 people now. We're hoping to grow to about 55 to 60 in the next couple of months. So it's a big push to try and grow out some of our execution. That's amazing. Well, it certainly sounds like you're undergoing a tremendous amount of growth from at least the initial time that we've spent together and had a chance to spend with the rest of your team. There's really something unique, I think, that you're trying to build there. And if I was to pinpoint in history some of the canonical institutions that did a great job of bringing similar disparate expertise to the table under one roof, Bell Labs comes to mind as one interesting example. You know, there's, I think, a unique opportunity that sometime in the near future, what Bell Labs did for the physical world, right, I think someone needs to do for biology. And I think what you're building there has a real chance at sort of replicating that same magic, if you will, algae space. So excited to see where it goes. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Well, you know, Simei, with that, love to thank you for being on the podcast. Very excited to see uh, what the future portends as you 
endeavor in this direction and build out your first set of companies and would love to have you on again as those come to fruition. Awesome. Thank you so much. This is really fun to chat with you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.